0: Welcome to a Better's Verdict and Designated Crossover Podcast Event. As listeners to this podcast may know, I'm Stephen Jacobs. I host the podcast series called The Better's Verdict on gambling, crypto, and sports law. And I'm here with my colleagues Jonathan Cross and John O'Donnell. Jonathan Cross hosts the Herbert Smith podcast series called Designated, a podcast about sanctions. Jonathan is an expert on sanctions and trade regulation, and we have our colleague John O'Donnell here also. He is a former SEC enforcement lawyer and assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, well, former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. John O'Donnell and Jonathan Cross, welcome. Thanks.
1: Thanks, Steve.
0: So we are going to talk today about digital assets and how they are regulated in the U.S. And and John, I want to start with you. What can we say generally about what's going on in this space?
1: Uh, Sure. Thanks, Steve. So, well, there are a lot of things going on in this space. um, And, you know, a lot of the uh, regulators under the Biden administration are very interested in uh, regulating cryptocurrencies uh, and the like. So and and other digital assets, you know, there's a big difference between something being regulated as a commodity Uh, or as property, uh, or currency, or as a security. You know, I'll focus first on things being regulated as securities. And if a digital asset is classified as a security, that carries a whole host of uh, implications uh, for issuers of those assets, uh, for brokers or traders in those assets, um, and, you know, others who are investing in those assets. Um, Most notably, if you're an issuer of a a digital asset, then you're required to comply with the registration provisions of the Federal Securities Act of 1933, uh, which requires, you know, an extensive um, disclosure of um, performance and other information related to the asset. So uh, that's a very significant um, step if um, if a digital asset would be classified as a security, uh, and there is a test uh, that is applied to determine whether something qualifies as a security or not. Uh, It's from a Supreme Court case in 1946, uh, you know, called the Howey test. And there are basically three elements. Uh, The first is whether the uh, contract involves an investment of money. Uh, The second is whether that investment is in a common enterprise. And the third and most important element is typically Uh, whether there's an expectation of profit to be derived from the element, uh, from the uh, efforts of other people. So think, for example, when you buy stock in a company, uh, you're investing your money into that company, expecting that the people who run the company will uh, lead to a profit. So that's the Howey test. The, you know, one interesting thing is that You know, we're dealing here with 21st century technology, uh, digital assets, um, things that have never been seen or contemplated before. And yet we're applying a standard uh, that goes back to 1946, um, which was originally uh, created in response to people trying to avoid uh, the securities laws when they were enacted in the 1930s. So so there is a mismatch
0: uh, there. John, what's an example of something that would not be regulated as a security? For example, what's an example of a commodity or, or something of that sort?
1: Well, you think of a classic commodity, right? Um, oil is a commodity. Um, natural gas is a commodity. Things that are tangible assets are clearly uh, not securities and, are, uh, and, are, uh, and would be a commodity. Uh, a currency would not be a security because there's no uh, – no evidence that you're expecting to profit from the um, from the efforts of other people,
0: mm. and so that's why many people said, would say, right? At least Bitcoin currently, well, that's a commodity because it's totally decentralized. There's no central authority that you're expecting to profit from with respect to Bitcoin, so it should mm-hmm. be a rightly a commodity at least. According yeah, to
1: many. exactly right. And and for that reason, you know, the SEC staff has, you know, previously indicated that they don't uh, view Bitcoin as a security.
0: Why does it matter? So wh- if it's a commodity or security, wh- why is it really that important? Uh,
1: I think it's because of the regulations that, uh, you know, that govern the conduct of people in the securities uh, industry and in the securities world. Uh, like I said, if a... If a digital asset is classified as a security, uh, it can only be issued through, you know, the equivalent of an initial public offering, um, and you know, the registration process that the SEC has uh, created, um, people who, uh, hold digital assets on behalf of, uh, investors or clients now become subject to investment advisor rules governing, uh, the way they hold assets, um, you know, people who trade, um, uh, digital assets become subject to the uh, provisions of the securities laws, including being subject to uh, you know, potential lawsuits for violations of uh, section, the anti-fraud provisions, section 10B and rule 10B5. So if uh, Chairman Gensler gets his way and uh, digital assets are classified as securities, it creates a whole host of uh, regulatory requirements on people in this space.
0: Interesting, and we're seeing also legislation coming through Congress recently that could also seriously increase the sort of demands on folks in this space. I recorded an episode a couple months ago about the infrastructure bill, the trillion dollar infrastructure bill that was passing the Senate. I
1: know you've been following that legislation, Steve.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And at the time, there was a bipartisan group of senators that said there's this little crypto provision tucked in here that's going to be very hard for many of the folks that it applies to to follow and what it is is it's an expanded definition of the term broker in this infrastructure bill of course what a broker is has very little to do with infrastructure but at any rate it's in the bill and the bill defines broker to include not just crypto exchanges but also potentially miners and software developers that would then be required to file certain customer reporting transactions that they wouldn't be able to, or they possibly won't be able to follow. So there's a lot of opposition to this bill in the crypto industry and in, well, in the Senate, frankly, but it it still got through the Senate by a vote of 69 to 30. And the infrastructure bill is currently in the House. It was supposed to be voted on just this week, I believe. Um, but there's been some wrangling unrelated to the crypto provisions. So this is also expected to significantly increase reporting requirements for cryptocurrency exchanges, which um, we'll see what happens with that. But John and Jonathan, I understand apart from the legislation, regulators are already considering how to address crypto in various ways. How do you see that playing out?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll I'll jump in and then I'll let uh, Jonathan uh, follow up. Uh, But, you know, I'll point out that, you know, Gary Gensler, who's the new chairman of the SEC, just recently testified before Congress uh, and indicated that, you know, he's asked uh, the staff of the, uh, you know, of the SEC to take a hard look at uh, digital assets and whether they should be subject to uh, the registration provisions that I just described. Uh, And, you know, he made his feelings about the space. No. Quite clear because he described uh, you know crypto assets as uh, the wild West right now, so uh-huh. I think we can we can definitely expect that the SEC is going to be um, looking for opportunities where they can classify digital assets as securities uh, and expand their regulatory
0: uh, scope hmm. interesting yeah um Senator Toomey who's against very restrictive crypto res- re- Legislation. He was one of the senators that led the way back in August to try to get this bill changed unsuccessfully, referred to Gensler's approach as regulation by enforcement, and said it's very objectionable.
1: That's exactly what it is.
0: Um, Jonathan, what do you think?
2: Uh, well, you know, I think that, that there are really, a, you know, a number of implications here um, for a variety of regulatory regimes. Um, and I think uh, th- to start with a general point, the regulation of financial intermediation has been an immensely powerful regulatory tool for governments, uh, including the U.S. government. And so we see that in a number of areas where uh, regulatory requirements targeted at financial intermediaries have been key to anti-money laundering laws, key to U.S. economic sanctions, key to things like tax reporting. Um, and so uh, but those those regulatory obligations on financial intermediaries uh, exist under laws that were developed for, uh, uh, you know, a different type of financial architecture than the one crypto envisions. Uh, So we're struggling to determine, you know, how do the securities laws apply to crypto? Are crypto intermediaries kind of analogous to banks? Maybe, are they analogous to securities dealers? Are they analogous to uh, money services, businesses, or money transmitters? Because, uh, Currently, uh, it's not clear which, if any of those categories, uh, firms that intermediate or process crypto transactions should fall within. And consequently, the application of a number of requirements related to sanctions and AML compliance to crypto has been unclear. Um, This is really, I think, just a continuation in the Uh, financial services space of a trend I think we've seen across the economy uh, where in a number of other maybe more uh, uh, local or consumer-facing contexts, we've seen technology disrupt regulation so uh if your city had a very tightly controlled uh highly regulated taxi system uh uber and ride sharing came along and maybe upended that um uh, places that had uh, a hotel and lodging regulations saw those structures challenged by airbnb uh, and so, in a way, it's the same phenomenon here. It's uh, it's a new way to transfer value, a new way to store value. Uh, it doesn't fit existing regulatory categories, and so it threatens to um, uh, perhaps uh, dilute uh, or, or or impact uh, you know some things that are very important to sanctions and AML enforcement. With respect to the sanctions implications, in particular, I think it's very important to understand the centrality of the U.S. dollar to the effectiveness of U.S. sanctions. Um, U.S. sanctions apply in general to acts done on U.S. territory or by a U.S. person, Uh, and the fact that U.S. dollar transactions, if you look at the mechanics of how they're conducted, generally involve a clearing step where there's a dollar clearing transaction, which occurs typically in the United States and typically conducted by a U.S. institution whereby if you are using a bank account in Germany to transfer a U.S. dollar sum to France, that money goes to New York and comes back out. So the, the ability to regulate intermediation of dollar transactions, coupled with the fact that the dollar is the world's reserve currency and the dominant currency of global commerce, has provided uh, the Treasury with a tremendous regulatory lever Uh, for purposes of things like sanctions and anti-money laundering enforcement. And for a long time, there's been stuff in the press and speculation about, you know, will there be a dollar rival, uh, a new potential dollar alternative, uh, which could threaten to undermine dollar hegemony and thereby undermine some of the regulatory authority that comes with controlling the world's dominant currency?
0: For some of the non-lawyers that might listen to this feed, could you provide maybe a 20-second uh, nutshell version of what, what sanctions are?
2: So sanctions are, uh, in general, prohibitions uh, against dealing with certain persons, companies, or countries. Uh, so, the United States for uh, decades has maintained various sanctions programs. For example, we sanction the leaders of international drug cartels. And uh, if you're designated as a specially designated national, all of your assets in the United States are under the control of a U.S. person or frozen, and no U.S. person can do business with you. That means no U.S. bank can clear a dollar transaction for your benefit, which means, in effect, that no one in the world can do business with you in dollars.
0: Mm. So crypto, it, well, it's, it's very cl- obvious how crypto could sort of upset sanctions regimes then, uh, since in many cases, you don't know where the money is going.
2: And because it has the potential to de-dollarize transactions that otherwise would have been conducted in dollars. Right. Uh, the it, More generally, if crypto, now this is speculative, if crypto were to become Uh, I I don't want to say a dominant store of value, but so widely used that it was, you know, bigger than the Euro, right? A very, very big international phenomena growing from where it is now. The fact that so much business is being conducted in crypto would mean a lot of that business isn't being conducted in USD and the, uh, some of the predicates for uh, some US AML and sanctions uh, jurisdiction would be undermined. Mm. Now, Importantly, though, there's no there's no sanctions exemption for transactions conducted in crypto. Uh, if you are a U.S. person or subject to U.S. jurisdiction, uh, any transaction with a sanctions target, whether conducted in crypto or dollars or in any other form, is prohibited. But the the extraterritorial effect of U.S. sanctions on people outside of the United States is diminished uh, significantly. Uh, that's one implication you uh, mean
0: to it, tell me that if I were to send crypto to an address that happens to be in, say, North Korea or Iran, I could be subject to liability, even though I have no idea that the recipient is in one of those countries?
2: Yes, uh, is the simple answer. Uh, there's a prohibition against uh, trade with some exceptions but not many with embargoed countries uh, like uh, north korea and it's unlawful to send money to north korea unless you're within a license or an exception and that applies whether that transfer of value from you a us person is in dollars or in crypto or in any other form now in terms of whether you could be liable without knowing sanctions liability is strict there's no knowledge requirement but mm-hmm. OFAC's enforcement guidelines uh, do take into account uh, whether, whether you knowingly violated uh, uh, sanctions, whether you knew of the uh, involvement of a sanctions target. It's, it's a bit complex, but it, knowledge is not irrelevant, but it's not a defense.
0: Mm. So in light of some of the themes that you spoke about, about what, what, how the dollars and crypto will impact sanctions, how do you expect Treasury to exercise authority granted by the infrastructure bill? Will they sort of use it as a negotiating chip? Will they try to do regulation by enforcement? How do you see that playing out?
2: Well, so on the infrastructure bill, and and here we're moving really away from sanctions to to uh, really a tax reporting issue. Uh, the language, uh, as I think we discussed earlier, is is potentially very broad, and I think that you know the concern has been that it that it captures a, a variety of of parties providing some type of hardware or software or other services or assistance to a crypto exchange for example and those parties aren't going to have tax reporting information but that but they'd be defined as brokers and would have reporting obligations now in that connection uh, the reported uh, comments of uh, Treasury officials have been generally I think encouraging in that uh, what we're hearing what you know what we're seeing in the reports is that Treasury intends to take It seems a functional approach, in other words, um, the comments that have been reported have been that broker will be defined uh, consistently with its current treatment in tax law is not likely to include uh, miners, hardware developers, and others, and that in general, Treasury intends to extend reporting requirements only to those able to comply. So, uh, you know, it really appears that the approach is going to be, do you have the information that would be necessary to do tax reporting? Are you performing a function that, that is analogous to, you know, a traditional broker of other assets who would be required to provide reports? And it appears that it appears that there's no intention to broadly target crypto ecosystem vendors, let's say, and people who perform incidental services and, and require them to provide tax reporting of information they don't have and can't get.
0: Well, that would be a relief for, for many to hear because the, the crypto lobby has been very worried about this for the past several months.
2: Well, it is an ongoing rulemaking, and the ball can bounce any number of ways. But the, the reported, although not attributed to specific officials' comments that I've seen from Treasury officials indicate that, that the rule might be a bit more reasonable than people's fears reflect.
0: Mm. And John, we we started touching on all this earlier, but what would the AML, the anti money laundering implications be, if if crypto is indeed all regulated as securities ultimately, if Gensler has his way?
1: Well, I think uh, AML implications for crypto could could be much broader because they wouldn't just be limited to um, the securities world. Uh, but certainly, um, stockbrokers are subject to AML requirements of uh, knowing their customer uh, and filing um, a suspicious activity reports when they receive information uh, indicating that uh, assets are being uh, disposed of in a in a manner that violates the law. That that they're dealing with the proceeds of uh, what's called specified unlawful activity. So, <clears throat> so I think. Um, designation of crypto assets as a security would certainly uh, enhance uh, AML obligations or impose AML obligations upon uh, multiple participants in the marker, market, you know, whether brokers, traders, uh, or, you know, even cryptocurrency exchanges.
0: What are suspicious activity reports that you just referenced?
1: So suspicious activity reports are uh, documents that are filed by um regulated entities in the United States, such as uh, banks, broker dealers, uh, and the like, where, <clears throat> where they receive information that, um, you know, funds moving in and out of an account or, you know, financial transactions occurring in accounts uh, housed in their, uh, you know, in their um, domains uh, involve, uh, you know, illegal activity. So, those reports are filed with, uh, with what we call FinCEN, which is uh, part of the Department of the Treasury. Uh, and then those reports can uh, be farmed out to various law enforcement agencies for further investigation.
0: How could that possibly work in a crypto context where you might know the size of the transaction, but you don't re- well, you might know other things about it, but you might not know much more about it?
1: Yep. Again, this is an example of using, you know, technology and tools that apply to a, a different platform uh, and trying to apply it to, you know, a brand new uh, technology and a brand new uh, way of dealing uh, with uh, assets. So, so you're right, that does raise tremendous uh, problems because the people with the AML obligations won't have the information that they need to satisfy those obligations and probably won't have um, a very good way to get that
0: information. Mm. So John, you were with the SEC. This is a question I've been getting from listeners pretty much nonstop for the last couple of months, ever since the story broke about Coinbase's lend product. Yep. So for those who don't know, Coinbase had planned to issue a product that would offer a four percent interest on certain US dollar coins to their to their customers. And they were going back and forth with the SEC about it. They were they were being proactive with the SEC, which many other crypto exchanges are not. They just put things out and say, you know, come at me. But Coinbase was trying to do the right thing. And the SEC was pretty non-responsive and then ultimately sent a Wells notice to Coinbase saying um, that it would be a problem if if they were to issue this product. What is a Wells notice and what do you think is going on here?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, under the sec's regulations for when they uh bring a case um so let's back up for a minute so when the sec is doing an investigation uh the investigation and the work is done by the lawyers who are the sec the commission staff itself um those lawyers will uh prepare a recommendation to the commission um You know, requesting that the commission authorize them to file an action in the name of the Securities and Exchange Commission. So that's formally the way it works. The staff investigates, prepares a recommendation to the commission, and the commission authorizes the filing of the action. So the commission is essentially their client. Um, Under their regulations, you know, absent some, you know, need for speed or secrecy like an ongoing fraud or a risk of flight the SEC is required to tell somebody that they, the SEC staff is required to give someone notice if they intend to recommend an action against that person uh, and allow that person uh, a chance to be heard. Uh, And that's what we call the Wells process. So a Wells notice is a a formal notification from the staff to a potential respondent that, you know, hey, we're going to recommend that the commission bring charges against you on, you know, and typically, the following grounds: the person who receives a Wells notice has the right to put in uh, a Wells submission, uh, which is then given to the commission together with the staff's recommendation. So the commission will consider it, you know, on it, on its own merits as part of their determination as to whether or not uh, the action should be uh, should be authorized. So that's where uh, the Coinbase st- uh, proposal is now. Normally, a Wells notice is the kind of um, inflection point in an investigation that results in uh, negotiations between the parties, uh, you know, for a potential settlement. Um, so that's um, that's what's happening. It's it is interesting that uh, Coinbase has been in dialogue with the staff for so long and then just received a Wells notice all of a sudden Uh there's probably two sides to that story, but you'll you shouldn't hear any of it from the SEC staff because they're not allowed to talk about it. It's spoken like a true government man. Um, but I but I would say this. My my thinking is that the SEC is looking for a good test case. Um, they may think Coinbase is a good case. You know, they have the Ripple case pending, as you know, uh, involving an initial uh, coin offering um, that they claim was uh, an unregistered sale. Um, But I think they're looking for good test cases that they can bring uh, where they think they can show that under the facts, uh, this test, this Howie test we talked about earlier was met.
0: Very interesting. Uh, Any predictions, no matter how outlandish, for where things might go from here before we sign off from either of you?
2: Yeah, I think it's possible that, you know, we've been discussing the the uh, SAR obligation and KYC requirements and the potential that if you define crypto as a security that could be triggered, it could be triggered in other ways as well. Uh, For example, even if a particular crypto asset is not a security and therefore an entity intermediating, it is not a securities broker. You could define that entity as a money, money services business, for example. And that would, that would not mean that securities disclosure obligations apply, but it would mean that the Patriot Act obligations to conduct KYC and to file suspicious activity reports would apply to that crypto exchange broker intermediary, um, and probably the tax reporting would apply as well. So there's a number of different definitional avenues uh, that, that uh, could lead to the conclusion that uh, crypto transactions have to be reported to the government when they're suspicious. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and Steve, my prediction follows up on what I just said. You Within the next year, you'll see a significant test case filed by the SEC uh, where they'll be looking to get a court decision.
0: Well, folks will be waiting with bated breath. This is a giant industry that's sort of hanging in the balance of this regulation. So that'll be. Yeah. Jonathan, how can people reach you if they want more information on sanctions or crypto and, and their interplay?
2: Well, I'm... Uh, I'm uh you know, googling me will usually pull up the uh, sanctions blog, sanctions notes that we have here at HSF, where we put regular content up. Uh, my email is uh, jonathan j o n a t h a n dot cross c r o s s at h s f Frank dot com, uh,
0: and uh, yeah, so
2: I'm I'm readily reachable.
0: John, how about you? Where can you be found?
1: Uh, my office is right next to Jonathan's, and. Uh, <laughs> My email address is, extre- is uh, almost the same. It's john.odonnell at hsf.com. Uh, and, and like Jonathan, uh, you can find me on the Herbert Smith Freehills website.
0: Well, thank you both. This has been a crossover episode between the better's verdict and designated, which we are very excited to bring you this uh, our thoughts on the future of, of finance here. I'm Stephen Jacobs. I can be reached at stephen.jacobs at hsf.com. And as always, this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and not legal advice. Thank you guys both for joining.
1: Thank you for having us, Steve. Thank you.